This is the Imperfect Buddha Podcast, the podcast that dares to think differently. Hosted by two terrible Brits, that's me, Matthew O'Connell, and my co-host, Stuart Baldwin. Each episode features a guest interview on topical matters concerning Western Buddhism and spirituality in general, or a lively discussion between the hosts, mixing insight with banter. You can find us on Twitter and Facebook, download all episodes for free at SoundCloud, and find out more, as well as lots of writings on topics explored in the episodes, by visiting our dedicated site, posttraditionalbuddhism.com. The Imperfect Buddha Podcast recommends O'Connell Coaching. Yes, that's still me, if you wish to work with any of the themes that have come up throughout these episodes. Find out more at O'ConnellCoaching.com. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Imperfect Buddha Podcast. This is our penultimate episode in the series, Engaging with Academics, Studying Buddhism from Different Angles, Points of Views, and with Different Types of Questions. One thing that's united all of them is that we believe that the questions they're asking are important to you too, as a practitioner, as somebody engaging with Buddhism personally. Hopefully, you've been convinced by this and have enjoyed the series. It's also been part of our dedicated commitment to addressing anti-intellectualism in Buddhism. So yes, you've heard about new terms, different concepts, you've heard about big thinkers from history. For some of you, this will already all be rather familiar, and you may even have your own strong opinions about it. But for many of you, no doubt, a lot of what you heard was quite new, and I hope it stimulated you to do a bit more reading of your own. Now we have two more guests with whom we're engaging with the academic world. Of course, there's a crossover to the practical and for the practitioner. We're not just talking about theory. If you listen to our conversations, most of our academic guests were also practitioners of Buddhism. Now, a little bit of housekeeping, as Sam Harris might say, before I get on to today's guest. Now, you can hear my voice. It actually sounds quite good. You must be fed up of hearing me talking about my own voice, but as I do the editing too, it's quite strange to listen to how weak my voice has been over the last couple of months. And no doubt, by the time I get to the evening, and I'm interviewing the next guest coming up, my voice will be weak again, and I'll have to record another introduction in which I bore you with the details. Needless to say, my conversation with Richard suffered from the same problem. You may not notice it, but I feel I kind of have to say something, just because it makes me feel a little bit better, which is not a bad thing considering I continue to be rather ill, and this is not a, a call for pity from you, dear listener, but just an acknowledgement that illness is a funny old business, or as an old English colleague of mine used to say, rum business. I always liked that expression, never heard anybody else use it, but it sounds appropriate for the condition I'm in currently. Anyway, fingers crossed, things will continue to improve, and I'll eventually get to say, I'm better, folks, and move on. If not, I might drop dead. But hey, if you're a Buddhist, you're supposed to be prepared for that kind of thing, aren't you now? Now, the song for today's episode is going to be mentioned right now, because I often forget to mention it, which is unfortunate, considering musicians are so generous to share their music with us. This is actually a blast from the past. Today's song is by an old Bristol reggae dub group called Restriction. One of their members was the original founders of Smith & Mighty, who produced our original intro music. He went on to be pivotal in the formation of Massive Attack, a group many of you will have heard of, and the development of the Bristol sound, 
and a whole genre of music called trip-hop. I also need to do a bit of advertising, too, for the old Insight seminars. Those of you who are regular listeners will have probably heard a few of the short episodes we recorded in order to give a bit of advertising to the events. Now, because of the illness, I've had to reduce my workload a little, and I haven't managed to do a couple of episodes this time round. But I am in time to advertise them right here for those interested. So what's coming up? Well, there are two that you might like. The first one is taking place on the 23rd of March, which means the Saturday after this episode is released. That doesn't give you a lot of warning, I'm afraid, but that's how it is. And it's with a chap who did come on previously and talk to us, Gabrielle Rockhill. He's a philosopher and cultural critic, and yes, he's an activist too. Make of that what you will. He's the founder and director of the Critical Theory Workshop, an associate professor of philosophy at Villanova University. This talk of his is going to be about a topic he's rather interested in, which is aesthetics, which is a word I always find difficult to pronounce. Lots of tongue in there, isn't there? Aesthetics. You can probably say it better than I can. That's the first bit of the title. The rest is Toward a Radical History. Well, if it's insight, there's going to be some radical in there somewhere. In fact, it's going to get to the point where I have to make, where I may have to make a joke about that. But considering these guys are tackling rather serious topics that do need intellectually rich engagement, I probably won't bother, right? If you're in Philadelphia this Saturday, and if you're interested in becoming smarter and more intelligent and thinking about big topics, you might want to go along. It's all about art, this one and its relationship to the real world of politics and society, and how things change over time. You're going to hear some of the big thinkers in there. George Lukacs, Herbert Marcuse, Sartre, Susan Sontag, and Jacques Rancière. Oh, excuse my pronunciation. If they're dead, they're probably turning in their grave. If not, sorry folks. The second event is called Decolonizing Academia. Well, there's a theme, isn't there? Poverty, Oppression and Pain, and the lady leading this workshop is called Clelia O. Rodriguez. She was born in El Salvador, so she's going to have an interesting take on this whole theme, isn't she? She studied in the UK and in Canada. Now check this out. This is rather curious. The workshop is described as an exchange, an unlearning trajectory rooted in the teachings of radical love. Wow. That sounds curious and interesting, doesn't it? Through the lens of critical pedagogy, the collective will consider ways of reading and writing in order to refill other ways of knowledge. That's epistemology, folks. This event is taking place in April, so you've got plenty of time to go and read the blurb on the website and decide if you're interested. It's on April the 13th. That's a Saturday morning. As with all of these events, there's a sliding scale so if you're poor, if you're a student, and you still want to go, you can turn up and pay what you can. Whatever you think of things like gender studies and decolonization, let's be honest, these are rather interesting themes and highly topical, and we need as many smart people discussing them as possible. And well, if it's an insight seminar, you can be sure that that will be taking place, whatever your views on the topics at hand. So that's the advertising done for that. One more thing before I get on to today's guest. Our final guest, I'm very pleased to get on because I've read so many of his books. And that's Donald S. Lopez. 
Many of you will be familiar with his work, especially his books on uh, the scientific Buddha and uh, Tibet. He's written some fascinating, insightful, highly readable pieces looking into the relationship between the West and our tendency to make more of Tibet than perhaps we should. That will end the academic series and followed on from that we're going to have a practitioner series. Now this is going to be quite challenging for me because you may have noticed I'm not that interested in a lot of the typical discussions that take place in and around Buddhism. I'm just kind of bored of them. I don't really want to get into them anymore. And plus I'm generally of the opinion that if it's been done well why would you bother repeating it? So in the practitioner series you will likely see some familiar names if they choose to come on. But my challenge as the podcast host is to engage with a different way of thinking about Buddhism and practice and to engage with different types of questions than they might normally be used to. My hope is that I can encourage teachers and practitioners to go beyond some of the the typical limiting discourse that takes place in and around Buddhism, that we might challenge some of the assumed norms for practitioners and break out of the tendency for practice to be private and personal and subjective. My view, quite strongly, is that for practice to become meaningful beyond a sort of self-management ideal, is that it has to engage with the wider world. And this means bringing personal experience into dialogue with other forms of knowledge. And our academic guests have provided quite a bit of that and demonstrated how that's possible. Anyway, that's the plan. We'll see how it goes. I'll be taking a short break after the Donald S. Lopez episodes before diving into that. I've got to rest, folks. Got to rest. And then we'll be getting on with it. I'm looking forward to it, though, because I really enjoy these conversations. And I do hope that you're enjoying them, too. That said, final point, if you have any feedback to give on the series we've done, please do so. You can do so publicly or privately. We're not shy here. But if you enjoyed episodes, if you have thoughts about them, if you were challenged by them, irked by them, bored by them, bothered by them, amazed by them, titillated by them, then please send a view, a comment via Twitter. You can do that via my personal Twitter account or the Imperfect Buddha account too. You can do it on the Facebook page if you want to. You can also message in private. You can also send an email via the post-traditional Buddhism site. You've got lots of choices. You can even do it on SoundCloud. Wherever you like, it's good. Now, finally, after quite the long intro, let's talk about today's guest. He's one I'm very happy to have got on. He's an interesting chap. He's quite the character. And I think you'll notice that as you listen to our discussion. Dr. Richard K. Payne is the Yehan Numata Professor of Japanese Buddhist Studies and the Dean of the Institute of Buddhist Studies too. He studied philosophy and psychology and, of course, Buddhism. And he even spent time training for the Shingon priesthood on Mount Koya in Japan. He has a particular interest in ceremony and ritual and has done quite a bit of study on the fire ritual. He's also the senior editor of the Pacific World Journal and he runs a personal website called Critical Reflections on Buddhist Thought contemporary and classical, where you can find some fascinating pieces to read. We talk about a number of topics, many of them tying together elements and events and topics we've looked at with past guests. We look at ideology again, of course. We give a mention to John Gray, the British philosopher, and talk about the 
ongoing role of transcendence in Western Buddhism. We look at anti-intellectualism and some ideas about how people might approach that and manage to throw up some critique of Robert Wright's book, Why Buddhism is True. We also look at uh, dualism and its role in Buddhism, often separating the mind from the body in practice, and the role ritual and ceremony might play in all of that. Richard wrote an essay, which was one of the things that initially attracted me to his other work, on traditionalist representations of Buddhism. That might sound a bit funny, but it's basically an essay which looks at the role of perennialism, which is this odd idea that all religions are the same. You can just apply that to Buddhism too. This odd idea that all Buddhisms are the same and equal. That's one aspect of it. And then traditionalism, which was something I hadn't known anything about before reading Richard's essay. I'm actually going to put a link to it and say no more. We talk about it briefly. I do recommend reading it. It will give you quite a bit of context for understanding a lot of what's going on in contemporary Western discourse, especially on the commercial end and the sorts of funny claims these big names teachers make uh, who tend to kind of lump everything in together, whereas Neo Advaita, Advaita, Universalism, you know, we're all one, this kind of nonsense, whether it's a, a Lama Suryadas or other teacher, many of you are certainly finding that stuff a little bit suspicious. Well, some of what Richard's essay will do is reveal some of the historical reasons why you should find that stuff suspicious and why it really needs critiquing. That's enough from me. Enjoy the episode. Welcome to the Imperfect Buddha podcast, Richard K. Payne. It's good to have you on, and, and thank you for agreeing to come on to the podcast today, Richard. Thank you for the invitation, Martin. You've written a lot. You've been at the academic business of, of studying Buddhism, working on Buddhists for quite some time. And personally, I find much of what you've written, and you continue to write, rather interesting. So I could kind of throw a hundred different questions at you, but I guess I'd like to start really by inquiring about your visibly critical engagement with Buddhism, Buddhist materials, and contemporary Western Buddhism as well. Can I ask you this? What drives this critical engagement of yours, and why is it so important to you? One of the things that I think needs um, clarifying there is what you mean by critical engagement with Buddhism. I have a critical sensibility about a number of issues in scholarship on Buddhism, and I have a critical attitude in the sense of being negative towards many of the representations of Buddhism in the popular sphere. The former are generally pretty technical, um, methodological, intellectual, uh, academic kinds of issues. The latter generally have to do with what I perceive as a kind of shallowness in much of what passes for popular Buddhism. And I will qualify that by saying that over the last decade, I have become so um, jaundiced in my view that I don't actually pay much attention to what goes on in the popular sphere with, with Buddhism. Occasionally, I'll see the front cover of a one of the three glossies, but it's not like I spend time 
reading those articles. I do not have a Facebook account anymore. My experience with the Buddhist community there was brief and intensely aversive. I had written on the topic of what I called in a blog post, White Buddhism, and Ron Purser, who I consider a good friend and a good colleague and a, uh, has a very interesting and valuable perspective on uh, Buddhism in the West today, said that I should sign up for Facebook and find out what's going on and with responses to what I had written. Um, I did so uh, only to find that the vast majority of the responses tend to be very um, ad hominem and ill-informed. And when I took the step of asking someone who had written something about the follow-up blog post, they didn't have the courtesy to reply. So what it was that bothered her about it. It was one of those very uh, brief laconic comments that was made about the, the second uh, follow-up blog post to the effect of, well, I don't believe it. I wanted to engage in some kind of informed conversation, and either there was silence or a lot of, as I say, ad hominem attacks, including questions about, well, isn't he speaking from a position of privilege? Well, that's either obviously true and therefore trivial, or, as I say, an ad hominem attack, because, of course, I have a huge amount of privilege. Uh, the question, I believe, that's much more relevant is, does one recognize it? My thought at that point was that almost everybody who is participating in a Facebook conversation has a huge amount of privilege, if nothing more than to the extent of being able to afford either afford a computer or afford access to a computer and have the time to engage in that realm of conversation. The thing that's disappointing to me is that some of the people who um, were participants in that Facebook community, what I found so disappointing was that some of them are themselves academics and others are uh, professional Buddhists of one kind or another. And you asked about what motivates my critical engagement much of it comes out of my experience working with the Buddhist Churches of America, Japanese American uh, organization, which is now well over a century old, is spread across the United States, has connections to Hawaii and Canada, uh, as well as, of course, strong institutional connections back to Japan. And that's a community that I have a lot of respect for, personal liking for a lot of the people involved, and they seem to be systematically being excluded or overlooked uh, or denigrated in much of the conversations that I saw. The tendency to assume that one's own, from my perspective, small version of Buddhism is the true version, is what I found offensive. And I will have hung around long enough with the teachings to know that I'm an anger type. Uh -huh. So what motivates me is when I get irritated. Um, <laughs> well, that's a good enough motivation, I guess. Um, so it's that degree of irritation and the, the sense that I have that people are speaking without a whole lot of knowledge and acting as if they do have the truth, the whole truth, and so on. I don't know if you have noticed. That would be presumptuous of me to think so, but um, certainly the amount of activity on my blog post has or blog has dropped sharply in part that's because 
I'm busy working on a number of projects, including a book-length project, but also because I stumbled into writing something that I shared with another good friend who pointed out that basically I didn't know what I was talking about. Another one of those instances where, in this case, I was the one who was um, willing to speak indignantly and with an accusatory tone um, and make an analysis about basically about one of the recent scandals in in the Buddhist community, but without uh, as much understanding as the situation actually warranted. So that led me to really rethink not only that particular issue and my response to it, but also in large part this desire on my part to jump in self-righteously with a sense of superiority um, and to correct wrongs, uh, as it were. So that has really cut back on the amount of posting that I've been doing, and it's been more um, professional uh, activities that I've been both focusing on and posting on the on the blog. Mm-hmm. Yeah, online Buddhist groups are, from my own experience, not the not the best places to spend time. And I'm not surprised you came up against such uh, uninformed attitudes. But I guess the part that's surprising is that it would be fellow academics. Uh, for someone, a non-academic like myself, I guess I would assume that you'd get a higher level of interaction from that sort of camp. But maybe that comes back to the point that I spoke to you about before we started recording, which is, you know, so many... Um, academics within Buddhist studies being practitioners themselves. You know, another question I often ask guests is, you know, do you believe there's some sort of conflict or, yeah, conflict of interest, I guess is the right term, as a practitioner and an academic? Because at some point, the personal will start to, I think, enter into the professional. And perhaps, you know, when things get too personal, it can become difficult to provide objective feedback or opinion on on complex topics such as race, gender, and, you know, the relationship between, well, I guess I'd very loosely describe them as traditional Buddhist communities in the West and then the convert communities. So mm, I guess that's just my two cents on it. Um, there is a long-standing assumption that people who have a religious commitment cannot be objective in their treatment of the tradition. And to the extent that one might choose to avoid certain topics or to represent things in a particular way, that can be problematic if one serves an apologetic function or a propagational function with one's scholarship that's difficult but i don't think that there is automatically an inherent contradiction between the two i think that one should be motivated to understand as accurately as possible by one's personal commitment i remember a class meeting in which i was talking about how a particular term was being translated by a particular scholar in a text and how that was in fact informed by their religious commitment. And one of the students basically said, well, so what if it's a good translation? And my response was, well, no, we need to know what it is that is going on with the process of translation, why this particular term, the the particular terms involved were Japanese purely on technical terms, and they were being represented in ways that I thought distorted the, the meaning in a particular fashion that led to a sectarian kind of orthodoxy, but which cut off the view from broader perspectives in the history of Buddhism. 
Um, and those broader perspectives, I think, are very, very important to understanding the, the context. So the particular issue, well, one way of thinking about this for me that has become useful uh, in talking with students is if we're trying to understand somebody like, say, Dogen, we can either look at what the tradition and scholarship, the the uh, Zen scholarship after the time of Dogen has said he was trying to say, or we can look at his own intellectual milieu and try to understand what he was in interaction with. And in order to do the latter, we need to understand those other traditions that he was in interaction with. So Dogen's training on Mount Hie in the Tendai tradition, I think is instrumental in understanding what he's trying to say about the practice of Zen. And to miss that and to only get the kind of orthodox interpretation of Dogen is to have a view which, in a sense, rightly falls into the kind of biased or distorted view that you suggested can happen with scholars, um, where they're fitting their view into a particular orthodox interpretation. So I don't think that there's any one simple answer to that question of the relationship between scholarship and religious identity. And I don't think that but I don't think that it's necessarily as negative as some people seem to think. Um, I wouldn't tend to put it on a sort of negative, positive spectrum. I, I just think that because we're human and we're flawed to some degree, there may be occasions where a topic is personally meaningful and provocative, and it may solicit certain types of reactions, which may make it difficult sometimes, I think, for the practitioner side of the academic to remain objective. And I just wondered if that might be relevant to the sorts of reactions you got when talking about a topic like white privilege or, or white Buddhism. To sort of give a bit of open space here, would you, do you want to talk a little bit about that topic or um, move on from it? Or <laughs> For me, it's, it's, it's fine either way. It's not included in the question. I still think that white Buddhism is a, an appropriate category for talking about a particular type of Buddhism. Um, and I very specifically capitalize white in my own usage of it. My own usage is derivative from scholars who talk about white Christianity in contrast to black Christianity. It's not the same as Buddhist modernism, but it is informed by the lack of ability to, to see one's own position and to take in semiotic terms, to take being white as an unmarked category, as the norm. And so when you call attention to it and say this is a particular type of Buddhism, in addition to not being just a version of um, Buddhist modernism, it's also not necessarily a racial claim. This is one of the things that had to do with the response that I got on Facebook was that I was basically being accused of saying that there's a particular racial form of Buddhism. And the very fact that what I was writing to was someone who was of Chinese origin was cast as I was somehow claiming that there's a form of Buddhism that's appropriate for white people. And that's certainly not what I was saying. And the instance of this person of Chinese background was propagating a particular form of Buddhism that I think we can plausibly label as white Buddhism, uh, in the same way that somebody of African heritage may propagate a form of white Christianity. So those are 
labels for particular ideological orientations uh, or formations. Of course, it has a basis in race discourse, but it's discourse about race. It works with me. I mean, I think the, the you know the cultural climate we have, especially in the states these days, in terms of uh, politics and race and so forth, makes any kind of conversation around you know skin color and so forth, even when done in the way you've just described, such a potential minefield. I don't think people have the uh, oh I don't know the self discipline, maybe the, the the patience to actually step back and and take a proper perspective on these these kinds of um, these kinds of ideas. I think it's interesting the way you described it. I mean, my my first reaction would have been, well, is he talking about race specifically? But when you described it in the way you did and we're drawing on, you know, white Christianity compared to black Christianity, that starts to immediately make more sense. I also think it's it's um, necessary for those who can to be to be pushing this point you made about the fact that there are these givens that are uncritically held, which may actually inform a huge amount of the way an individual or group practices something like Buddhism, and it sort of remains unaware until somebody comes along and points it out. I also think as well that the point I made before may still be relevant here, which is that, you know, when you take something like Buddhism or Christianity, it's, it's so, it's so powerfully part of a person's identity. If they, they feel any threat coming in from outside that may disrupt their idea about their, that identity, the reactions can be very strong. So from that perspective, I wouldn't be surprised that there was some sort of kickback to your, uh, to your work. Yeah, and I think that that's terribly ironic when it comes to people who claim a Buddhist identity that they should be attached to a Buddhist identity. Yeah, I agree with you <laughs> wholeheartedly, yes. And there are many other things to which the same criticism can be applied. Well, you know, let's, uh, let's talk about a few of them. Some of them are in the, the menu of questions we have. The material you've written over the years has just been very useful for me, at least, because it's been accessible and, and powerful in its uh, critique of certain, let's say, unspoken givens within contemporary Western Buddhism. One thing that I think might be a nice bridge to a recent guest we had on, David L. McMahon, when we were talking with him in his interview with the podcast, he reminded us that meditation is not ideologically free and that science's reliance on simplistic, ahistorical, often asocial models of meditation may mean that their conclusions in studying it are somewhat problematic and at the very least limited and idealistic. This is one issue I, I think you may have an opinion on and I wonder if um, any other important issues come to mind uh, that are at play in the sort of scientific study of mindfulness and meditation more broadly. Could you speak to that? One of the things that comes to my mind is the tendency to treat meditation in instrumental terms. That is, that it is some kind of tool or technique for accomplishing something. And I'm sure that there were plenty of people who will say, oh, gosh, golly, gee, of course meditation is a tool to accomplish something. Isn't that what the Buddha did? Well, that's certainly what the Buddha, who is represented to us in instrumental terms, did, because, well, there's a certain secularity there. I find it very, very problematic to just shove meditation into that kind of instrumental conception. It is a very much of a modernist way of thinking about things. The analogy, okay, it's not entirely an analogy because it, for me, meditation, ritual, and other practices are all part of a larger group. So in talking about ritual, about a year and a half ago, I made a presentation on Shingon ritual, on the fire ritual, uh, which has been my longest 
topic of scholarly work. And one of the people in the audience at the presentation, this was, this was at a small academic conference open, and one of the people said, well, how do they explain failures? Which is one of those questions that is so deeply rooted in assumptions about a universal way of thinking that, say, somebody in 8th century Japan or 6th century India would approach the performance of ritual in the same way that modern Westerners do, which is as an instrument to accomplish something. So this is a huge discourse huge in the sense of key and pivotal in supporting modernist exceptionalism. And it presumes that everyone has the same understanding that human activity is defined instrumentally, and that if you're doing something, you should be thinking about it in terms of, does this accomplish the end I want? Is this an effective instrument? And so the presumption in the question was, how, given that, of course, these rituals don't accomplish what they claim they're going to accomplish, how do their performers justify continuing to perform them? How, as instrumental failures, do people go on performing these rituals? This is projecting a modern mindset, a modern worldview, universally, the flip side of which, unfortunately, is to simply say, well, those people are irrational, we're rational, those people are irrational, we can tell because they, they don't have a, an instrumental worldview. So it's a wonderful way of approaching things, approaching what other people do that makes you right no matter what. Either they are intentionally or unintentionally dishonest in not admitting the failure of their rituals, in which case we share this kind of instrumental worldview universally, or they don't share that instrumental worldview and therefore they are inferior. So no matter which side of this uh, way of thinking is followed out on, we today wind up being superior to those people. And that's it's really difficult to deal with because people in some cases just take that kind of instrumental view as obviously universal. It is much the same in looking at rational choice theory in the economics of religion, where the assumptions are that the individual person is a rational agent who is seeking maximum rewards. Again, that's part of this modern, probably 18th century, 19th century construction of what it means to be a human being that is so deeply imbued in our present culture that it's difficult for people to see it or, or to think about it or to, to even you know stand back from their own involvement in it enough to perhaps begin to have some qualification about their views. I think it's very, very difficult because when you come to like the scientific investigation of meditation and mindfulness, to step back far enough to look at the questions and the assumptions behind the questions that are being asked. As you're no doubt well aware, a huge amount of the justification for um, mindfulness has to do with, well, it improves blood pressure, it does this, it does that. All of these pragmatic, instrumental outcomes from doing it. And, you know, that all might be true. 
I believe it's probably all true that, yes, if you meditate, you will lower your blood pressure. At least I hope so. As to whether or not it will aid you in weight loss or not, I think that that's a little more problematic. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> to think that you're talking about meditation when you place it inside that kind of a box is is probably to miss a whole lot of what else is going on. Yeah. Yeah, it was interesting um, as you were describing the conference and the, the question that came to you about the, the fire ritual just made me think about the fact that there's a great deal of poverty often in the perspectives that are being brought to ritual and Buddhist practice more broadly speaking. And certainly that's a consequence, I think, of this excessive over-focus on the pragmatic and, as you were saying, the instrumental outcomes that can be obtained by picking up this technology. And there always seems to be this consumerist mindset in the background, which itself is also part of this sort of uh, this general desire just to, to consume whatever's next on the menu of whatever will make me feel better or help me along in my life. I'm always curious, as well as a European, sometimes because so many of our guests are American, to what degree this is perversely American and to what degree it is... <laughs> You know, <laughs> I want to say sort of, you know, Western uh, and not just global, right? Because as a European, I mean, you, you may be aware of this, Richard, that we Europeans, especially Brits, we, we look down a little bit on Americans on occasion for certain types of behavior. But then if we're honest and we confess, we, we only do this in the pub on a Friday, of course, we confess to each other, we get up to exactly the same behavior anyway. <laughs> so, But huge respect for um, everybody else in the world. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. Of course. Part of our, the project of this podcast has been to sort of, you know, in a friendly, gentle, but hopefully persuasive way, you know, bring along these perspectives that so often get left out. And certainly the issue of Buddhist modernity has been a huge one with the recent guests we've had on and, and now you. I think another issue that comes up, which I'd like us to talk about briefly, and it is a theme really that's been running through so many of our episodes, right back to our our first interview with Glenn Wallace, who I, I know you're familiar with. And there was a British philosopher who I wanted to mention, but um, if I'm not mistaken, you may not be familiar with his work, but I'm going to read the question anyway, because it will take us where I want us to go. Um, mm -hmm. There's a British philosopher who I highly recommend. Uh, his name is John Gray. And I have to mention, he's not the American men are from Mars, women are from Venus author, who may consider himself a philosopher too. John Gray is a political philosopher, and he has a rather successful book called Straw Dogs, which is well worth a read. One of the major themes in it, which I resonated with, was this recognition that transcendence, in spite of modernity, transcendence runs through Western culture, identities, and its philo philosophical traditions very deeply. And this means that it runs into Western Buddhism as well. I've noticed more broadly that Western Buddhism and much of its cultural product is saturated by the same sort of legacy. How do you view the ongoing desire in the West to transcend the all-too-human spheres of culture, politics and our historical inheritance and the role that this desire has on the way Westerners, both practitioners and potentially academics, we'll see what you have to say about that, and maybe even scientists, engage or don't engage with Buddhism? Yeah, I think that that's really very deep culturally in the West. Let me just footnote that to say that it's not that it's absent elsewhere, but right now we're, that's what we're talking about. But certainly it goes... All the way back, anybody trained in philosophy would have gotten training in Platonic thought. And the grounding in Platonic thought 
comes forward into Neoplatonism and the Neoplatonic theology in Christianity, that is just so deeply pervasive throughout the whole culture. And it's one of the things that it certainly attracted me to the existentialists in my own college years of being trained in philosophy. Seem to be the only people who were turning away from that involvement with ideal forms, transcendence, abstractions, and instead saying, gosh, you know, look here to probably misquote Sart that, you know, your existence is primary. That is the basis upon which doing philosophy or engaging in Buddhist practice has to be based. That's the ground from which everything consciously needs to be developed. This also obviously has influenced my understanding of Buddhism because it's also, to my mind, what involves the escapism or what uh, facilitates the escapism that is part of what Buddhist practice, in my mind, should ideally be working contrary to. The, uh, I, I see ads, for example, for um, hotel chains that talk about getting an escape. You're talking about transcendence in a particular philosophic term, but in a very pragmatic sense, it's also the escapism of, well, I just need a vacation. I just need a little break. I'm going to, if nothing else, I'm going to check out and watch the, the Super Bowl. Um, which I don't know if you know how big a deal that is in the United States, but it's a good three hours of or four hours of not worrying about politics, not worrying about the social order and so on, which is why advertising on the Super Bowl – I'm going off on a rant here. I didn't know I was saying <laughs> um, Advertising on the Super Bowl that addresses social issues – gets such a big amount of attention. This this indicates that the advertising was not effective because I don't remember what the product was. Mm -hmm. I remember that the ad talked about how men can be better. Oh, I think that was Gillette, wasn't it? That sounds quite probable. We can step in and um, stop little boys from fighting with one another. Um, we can do these things. We can be better. And I mean, from what I saw, that probably got more attention than the results of the Super Bowl itself, which were complicated by the history leading up to it. But that aside, because that whole spectacle, it's the bread and circuses, distraction. So it's not simply a philosophic issue. It is a societal mechanism, the McDonald's motto of you deserve a break today. Well, why? What have you done that makes you deserve a break today? What is it about having a break from cooking that is the concept? You know, it's just, I feel like when I, these things come into my mind, I start to try to untangle them. They're just so totally crazy making. You know, people save up for their you know week long vacation in Hawaii and it's and then a week later no matter how idyllic it was no matter how perfect it was a week later it's it's over mm -hmm. you come back and it hasn't changed anything now I will admit I like going to Hawaii I like snorkeling looking at the all the little fishies in the sea I like taking a break I enjoyed watching the the Super Bowl but I'm circling back to that as something much more uh, mundane and immediate 
that has the same kind of structure as this abstraction of transcendence and its philosophical consequences, if that makes some sense. Mm -hmm. It does. And I mean, it's such a vast topic. It's a question I bring up because I'm perpetually fascinated by it. And like you, I tend to see it emerging in all sorts of odd places and it catches me by surprise. And I wonder to what degree, you know, whether, whether it's possible for us to rid ourselves of it culturally to any significant degree. In sticking to the theme of Buddhism, I find it fascinating how much uh, practice of Western Buddhism, in particular by Westerners, ends up becoming a sort of transcendental affair, and how within the discourse of Western Buddhism, there's, there's very often this, this change of language to what I perceive as escapist and anti-materialist, and being sort of saturated by certain forms of unquestioned hope. And I find that interesting. You know, I think for a while, my instinct was to to judge and to critique quite heavily. And I think I've mellowed over the years and I, I just find it perpetually fascinating now. Well, you mentioned Plato before. I mentioned uh, Socrates. I feel this kind of uh, playful desire to bother people with questions. <laughs> what are you actually doing there when you say you're doing X meditation? Just to see what happens. But maybe this is a good point to bridge over to another big theme that I know you're also well, you've, you've written about, which is ideology. I think ideology is probably a good topic for coming at something like transcendence, because again, it's the sort of thing that so many spiritual people in general, they don't like the word, or they tend to only use it in the political sphere. I like the way that somebody like Glenn Wallace uses it, which is, you know, to refer to um, any sort of system that produces a subject or a certain type of person with certain types of predictable uh, behavior. I actually tend to think of it as well as being quite a quite a straightforward concept once you get past, you know, some of the, the sort of historical context. It's not that difficult to grasp. Um, I think David McMahon was, was using this phrase of life worlds, which I don't think is so distant from it. Um, as I said, though, there does seem to be quite a, quite a lot of resistance to it amongst spiritual folks more generally in Buddhists too. And, and I wonder sometimes, just thinking out loud, if the contextualized world is perhaps too confining for the sort of desiring imagination of the practitioner who's caught up in that transcendence. And in particular, again, something you've written about, romantic notions of escape, pure feeling, and you know, this capacity to use meditation functionally, perhaps to leave the mundane world we inhabit behind, rather like that, that holiday in Hawaii you mentioned. Um, how do you think about this kind of resistance as I've described it? Does it make sense to you the way I've put it? And what do you think about the sorts of fantasies that, that continue to excuse this sort of escapist uh, strand within Western Buddhism? Yes, I think that the heritage of the kind of highly politicized use of the term ideology, its Marxist heritage as a term for false consciousness, has led to reactions against the term, not even particularly well-informed, because it's just a reaction against the term because it has those negative associations, which, to my mind, are very similar to the way in which the economic study of Buddhism, the economic study of religion, has only recently begun to emerge in the last decade or so, because if you ask an economic question about religion, then it sounds as if one is making a political claim and is denigrating religion rather than asking a serious social scientific question. More broadly, however, I think that where there's an opportunity for the existing ideological structures, in this case, particular um, 
religious worldview to read onto Buddhist thought a particular significance, then it will do so. It's almost quaint now to come across um, translations of, it's not almost quaint, it's terribly quaint, translations of Shunyata as the void uh, with a capital V, which comes out of a projection onto Buddhist thought concerns with nihilism in the 19th and early 20th centuries. So those concerns about motivated by nihilism and the, the sense of as if life were meaningless because there's no greater purpose imposed by some outer creator and we are simply in the void, those concerns got worked out in relationship to Buddhism by the projection of this concept. And it's like, okay, so we're going to have the bad projection of a concept that is of concern to us onto Buddhism. And then we're going to argue about the character of Buddhism because we projected this misinterpretation onto it. And that just seems to be so much the way in which this is this kind of concern informs my reticence about things like Buddhist philosophy or Buddhist theology. That by placing Buddhist thought into these structures, the concerns of those structures, those conceptual structures, those um, intellectual structures, the, the institutional structures are going to get worked out over the rotting carcass of Buddhism. Boy, how's that for a gripping image? <laughs> I, I seem to learn a lot at conferences where people misunderstand me. <laughs> right. A member of the audience at yet another conference said, oh, you're talking about the God of the gaps, a phrase that I was entirely unfamiliar with and was certainly not what I was talking about, but which in retrospect, now that I did learn something about it, was an issue that she had about theology and which she was hearing in what I was saying, even though it was whatever it was I was talking about had nothing to do with that. But it's that kind of difficulty where these structures come in and impose their concerns onto Buddhist thought. And then, as I say, begin to hash out using Buddhism as if it was, that's what Buddhist thought was about. You know, so much of that has to do with selection and priorities and why I generally keep insisting on looking at the whole context. If we look at something like, as a handy example, Dogen and pick some single piece out of what he's doing, we can make that mean all kinds of different things. It means something in the context of what he's doing, and that's what we need to understand. We can't just pluck it out and say, oh, well, that relates to our pre-existing concern over here in Western philosophy, and so now we can talk about Dogen as a representative of a particular view that's found in Western philosophy, and on and on. And that's Coming back to your question about ideology, which I've not entirely forgotten in my rant here, why an understanding, why the ability to think about systems of ideas and their power in constraining how something like Buddhism is understood, either in positive or negative terms, either as uh, you know, practitioners who want it to be in one particular way or as you know, critics who think it should be some other way. And to ask the question of, why are these issues so important in questioning Buddhism or, to use a more critical, interrogating Buddhism? So, yes, many practitioners, I think many religious people react negatively to the 
idea of ideology, it's also just downright difficult to get your head around it and to begin to think about one's own place, one's own ideological orientation, as it were. I think flippancy, uh, flippantly something, um, I responded that, you know, what Western Buddhists need to do is to, to get out of their preconceptions is to travel, to live abroad. And that is something that I think actually is a very, very valuable experience. It's it's not just, there used to be these places called Club Med, where you could go to Mexico and never be in Mexico. It's like you weren't really in Mexico because you were at Club Med. If you don't do that, if you get outside of the bubble that tourism often facilitates, begin to question how one's own assumptions, one's own society has informed one's own view. The analogy that I once used was that when I first arrived in Japan in the early 80s, I was very disoriented. Cars drove on the other side of the street. They didn't have the same shapes. People looked different. In those days, they tended to dress very conservatively. The smells were different. It was, for a period of time, very disorienting. But that period of time passed relatively quickly, and I began to realize that, okay, so just because the proportions of the building that I'm looking at are not quite what I would expect it to be in the United States, it's still a building. Although the shape of the car is different, it's still a car, and so on and so forth. I became acclimated, in a sense, to the culture, the physical environment. But then after something over a year, I really began to get a sense of how profoundly different the cultures are. For me, it was only after a more extended experience there that I began to realize just how different these things were. For example, a university <clears throat> could walk around the grounds of a university and go, okay, here's the university buildings, here's professors, here's students, you know, they have classes, they have semesters, and so on. And Japan's relatively westernized, so but there are some really significant differences in the relationships between people, for example. And so to begin to be able to see one's own society, not simply the given, not simply the norm, it helps to stand outside of that society. Going to Japan was, I mean, people talk about culture shock. I had much more culture shock coming back to the United States, which was suddenly a foreign country to me. I didn't expect it to be so foreign. The way people interacted, just in grocery stores, in driving, it was kind of much more profoundly disorienting than going to Japan was. So in terms of getting a sense of what ideology is and recognizing that one has one, that's a, a difficult process. Certainly actively learning, you know, desiring to know um, one's own cultural hi uh, history and to understand how limited that is by contrast with the cultural histories of other peoples um, can be a very valuable and I think I think liberating kind of project. Yeah, I agree. Oh, good. <laughs> <laughs> as, as listeners know, I you know I've been in Italy now for about fifteen, sixteen years, and and certainly it's been. Um, 
Well, obviously, it's not as different culturally as Japan. But I think one of the other points that comes up as well is, and perhaps this relates to the point about modernity and this this tendency to universalize. And perhaps we're just programmed that way. I have no idea. But there's this. It's, I think it's very difficult for us, certainly when we're younger, not to view the world through the, you know the prism of our own culture, even if we're trained or someone comes along with a bit of experience and tells us all about it. And it's amazing and. Uh, how many levels this this culturation process exists within identity and with the experience of selfhood in the sense that you know even after 10 years I still catch myself sometimes surprised by the fact that this sort of urgency comes out of me for Italy to be more English <laughs> you know I'm like how is it how is it you know part of me is just incredulous how is it possible that Italians behave that way don't they know you know there's this kind of phrase <laughs> right? <laughs> Don't they know that's just not what you do? And I'm like, oh, there's my Englishness again. But I also recognize what you're talking about, about this, this experience of alienation in returning to your own culture. That's something that came quite later to me in returning to England. I think that came after I became a father and settled down and bought a house, which is also quite obviously an external form of commitment. But it also means that I've grown up to some degree. And I'd, I'd, I'd agree with you. I, I think you know, it's not always, it's easier said than done. In Europe, we have the Erasmus project where students can take one of their university years and study in another country. And I think that's very, very positive, exceptionally good when handled well. But I agree with you, we'd probably all benefit from actually spending time, serious time though, in another culture mm -hmm. and without it being a touristic experience. Because you're right, there's this sort of, um, there's this voyeuristic element, isn't there, mm -hmm. when we're tourists, even if we had good intentions. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know if you want to add a little bit more to this. I think what you said was interesting, but I kind of feel, I kind of feel that Buddhist practitioners more generally are really missing out when they avoid something like ideology, because I think it it, it acts as a very useful indicator of of some of what a lot of Western Buddhism leaves out, which is the social formation of the individual. Mm. And it seems odd to me that people, especially long-term practitioners and teachers too, wouldn't come up against this in more explicit ways to say, well, look, you know, we're going to engage in meditation. You know, we're having discussions, hopefully deep, rich discussions about selfhood, about identity, about what it means to be a person in the world, what it means to live ethically. Then at some point, an awareness of that sort of enculturation process by wider society it kind of should be there. Would you agree with that? Do you think they're missing out? Uh, and do you think they'd benefit more if they were to start bringing in more social awareness in, in things like meditation practice? I would certainly think so. Yeah. I'm stuck if the goal is to, if the goal, that's a if, yeah. <laughs> significant qualifier, is to decenter one's personal identity, which is, I think, another perhaps useful and less threatening way of talking about um, emptiness, then certainly the social dimensions of um, the construction of identity are very, very important elements to realize. Whether the meditation hall is the place for that to happen is, I think, a separate question. Mm -hmm. So there is a question of what is the, the function of the meditation hall? What is the function of the Dharma talk? Which, okay, I'm, I'm going off on another circular loop here because Dharma mm -hmm. are 
Buddhist appropriations of Western religious practices. Mm -hmm. And it's not something that happened here. It's something that happened in Japan in the 19th century, giving a sermon by missionaries in 19th century Japan became the model for a Dharma talk, which is a literal translation of the Japanese. You know, it's like, what's the purpose of a Dharma talk? It's an instructional purpose, but the model is drawing back on sermonizing. And I think that it's presumed that that it's modeled on the way that the Buddha talked to his disciples. But that, I think, is a later overlay, a more recent overlay on what's going on with Dharma talks. The answer to your question is, I don't know if Dharma talks are an effective way to raise those issues. I don't know if... <clears throat> that's really an interesting question. I think that a, that a very effective meditation teacher could use opportunities to bring the social formation of identity into awareness into conscious discussion and move his students, her students, their students out of the presumption of isolated individual identity formation. Mm -hmm. But in, in fact, would be probably a very useful way for a skillful teacher, affect that kind of self-reflective awareness about the way in which the personal ego takes the center stage and acquires to itself a lot of opinions and attitudes that are and values that are simply floating around in the culture, mm -hmm. society, including in subcultures like Western Buddhism. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, I think your, your initial answer is, it makes me think again, perhaps I get carried away sometimes by certain forms of enthusiasm, but maybe the word should is the wrong word. And maybe, maybe it's better to view it more as an opportunity that some, as you said, skillful folks may choose to pick up or not. I do kind of feel on the one hand that there is a sort of ethical duty to touch on these topics because they're so present. And on the other hand, you know, as you said, is that really the purpose of a, of a, a particular presentation as a specific context? And I guess that's up for individuals to decide. I think in my more idealistic moments, I would like to think that people would feel naturally compelled to engage with such practice if they had a bit more awareness about it, because I think it would help in the long run in, you know, reducing ignorance, which again, I think <laughs> that's my kind of, uh, my take on Buddhism is, you know, uh, this is how I learned it. I started off with Tibetan Buddhism, but they were always together, you know, it's actually not just suffering, mm -hmm. which again, you know, is a term that can be analyzed and thought about. Uh, it's also ignorance yeah. and the two go together. And to me, I think that you're, you're kind of doing a disservice if, if you if you if you say a lot of good words in service to reducing suffering in yourself and others, then well, at some point you kind of have to pick up the baton and and say, well, there are actually social forms of suffering that you know Buddhists weren't aware of. I mean, we weren't aware of. I mean, this is a relatively recent discovery in terms of our collective knowledge as a species. I mean, how long have we known about the word ideology? Not long. Mm -hmm. That's probably what, less than a hundred years old, I assume, mm -hmm. and so it's it's new terrain, and I and I think it's right that that people don't feel that they have to do this kind of thing, but I think it gets to the point where the sort of ethical urge uh, or urgency becomes such that there's a there's a compulsion to do so to some degree, but of course it can be done in different ways, and I think this this again is a nice bridge to another topic which I want to talk about briefly before getting on to one of the uh, the core areas that I really wanted to talk to you about. <laughs> And this is um, this is really what I would 
I like to define as ideological entrapment. Um, I think that's one of my personal concerns. I think that when people are incapable of having a critical take on their own, let's say, perspective, what often happens is uh, a poverty of imagination. And this is the way I was thinking about it when I came across a post of yours I'd read a while back, but forgotten about, but came across again in preparation for this uh, conversation today. You had a blog post um, in which you used two terms, and let's see if you remember them. The first one was trained satisfaction, mm. which I think is fantastic. And the second one, which I also like very much, is the self-limiting of inquiry, which I think kind of resonates to some degree with what I've just said. Although if I'm wrong, you'll, you'll set me straight. I tend to think of imagination and the sort of creative capacity to think beyond our sort of received limitations and tension points and blind spots as being, as being something that, I can, that can actually be bolstered by something like meditation practice. But I think that it has to be aligned with intellectual inquiry. Um, as you're no doubt aware, there, there is a tendency within American culture more broadly of anti-intellectualism. I think that's seeped into Buddhism um, to quite a high degree, which is unfortunate considering the rich history of, of you know, contemplation, uh, discussion, and um, philosophy more generally. I guess I'd like to see more folks having a bit more uh, intellectual courage to think deeply about well, let's say some of the issues we're talking about together today, but also the wider issues. I wonder what you think about this, about anti-intellectualism uh, more broadly within Buddhism, and in particular, particularly connected to these two terms of yours, trained satisfaction and the self-limiting of inquiry. Trained satisfaction is part of what goes on with the academic project. And as part of being a member of a particular community within the academy, that you learn to stop asking. You, you learn that particular kinds of answers are adequate answers, and that you then learn to give answers of that kind. Yeah, it is a self-limitation, but it's part of that sense of, 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 of a discipline, and where we think that, that those concepts shift over into the religious world is the mystification that follows from particular kinds of answers being taken as limiting. The example I gave in that blog post was the God's plan. That was an artificial example, but I've heard that kind of thing. I've, you know, I heard someone say, well, it's really a shame that Billy died so young. Why did he have to die young? In all seriousness, another person in the group said, well, God wanted him to be with him. God wanted Billy to be with God. Guess what? Nobody said, how the hell do you know? <laughs> Nobody challenged that. This happened to be in a, a group that had you know, strong Christian orientations. And it's like, okay, well, that's an adequate answer. I, I'll feel satisfied. I'll stop asking. It's that kind of social training to stop asking questions. And of course, you know, we see that all the time in English language Buddhism. Well, the Dalai Lama says, blah, blah, blah. blah. Mm -hmm. Well, so what? <laughs> um, you know, I may be on thin ice here with um, some people. I'm sure I am. But the Dalai Lama can be wrong. And I think that even the attribution of omniscience to the Buddha is a misinterpretation. My interpretation of Sarvagnya is probably idiosyncratic, but it has to do with the Buddha knew what he knew accurately. 
not that he knows everything, not that he's omniscient the way God is in Christian theology, but rather that he knows things accurately. So, you know, there's a lot of stuff that the Dalai Lama knows accurately, but that doesn't mean that he knows everything. When people stop asking questions in light of an answer that is prefaced by the Buddha said, or Lama so-and-so said, or Zen master such-and-such said, or Ajahn whatever, and they stop asking, they go, okay, well, so that's that. That is a matter of social training. The, The little honor fraternity that I belong to, or belonged to, was initiated into back decades ago at my uh, school. The motto that I saw attached to it more recently was, honor tradition, question authority. And I thought that that was a really nice summation of the kind of attitude that is being suggested by you and me here in this conversation. Mm Mm-hmm. That, yeah, Buddhism offers us an incredibly rich set of resources. That doesn't mean, as Glenn has pointed out, that doesn't mean that Buddhism is completely satisfying to all the problems in the world. It doesn't have all the answers. And if you try to make up answers on the basis of it, then you're engaging this same kind of deferral of authority. But yes, we can respect the tradition, but we also need to question the tradition's authority and the authorities of the tradition. Yeah, creative thought is is coming at the same issue from a different direction. My approach would, my classes would be, so you have an authority, whether a religious one or an academic one, what do they know? You, you can't see me shrugging, gesture that, that went with it. What do they know? And one of the things that I, I try to get my students to to think of is uh, in terms of so what? And there's a the dismissive snarky way of using that phrase, but it can also be used as a tool for this kind of critical thinking, for going past being satisfied on the basis of one's training, of limiting oneself, of saying, okay, so Roshi so-and-so says this and that. A reasonable question then is, so what? So what follows from that? How did we get there? Why do we accept that authority? And so on and so forth. It's handy because it's such a punchy term, but it needs to be taken as a very useful tool to make one ask those questions, to go past the limitations that one has been trained to accept particular kinds of answers with. You know, so what? So, so what? That's the koan for the episode, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it needs to have at least three dots between the so and the what, I think. All right, okay. <laughs> now, one of my favorite essays of yours was on traditionalist representations of Buddhism. Uh-huh. You've told me this is a topic that's dear to your heart. Uh, I think your way of describing it was as one of your favorite hobby horses. Now, I was well aware of perennialism, and you know, was a proponent of of such belief <laughs> in my younger years, which I forgive myself for. We, we all were. No? Yeah, right. Yeah, that may be the case. Maybe there are a few early cynics out there. But so traditionalism, though, was something I was less familiar with until I read your essay on the topic. I think you you brought up some fascinating material in that essay of yours. And it'd be great to talk about that a little bit now. I think the first step, though, would be to, well, to address um, someone like myself when I, I first picked it up, which would be to say, 
What is the difference between traditionalism and perennialism? How are they different? How are they similar? This is my undoubtedly overly simplified answer to your question. Traditionalism takes all of perennialism, which I understand to be the claim that all religions are basically or ultimately the same. And perennialism, it's astonishing to me that the perennial philosophy, Aldous Huxley's book, is still in print. It's I've seen it in airport bookshops where it still plays an important part in the formation of popular religious culture. But it basically has the notion that all religions are ultimately the same. And this has played a huge role in the formation of modern religious studies in the um, academically. Much of the motivation for the comparative study of religion has been on the basis of that presumption, that there is some underlying universal shared religion that is captured in the phrase of, um, I don't know if there was somebody before this, but Kunraswamy used the metaphor of many paths, but but one mountain. There's all these different religions, which are nothing more than different paths up the same mountain, which Once I began to think about it, led me to question, for one thing, there's a very conservative strain there, because the next statement is usually, it is better to stay on your own path and make progress towards the peak of the mountain than it is to switch paths. So there's a very, very conservative message underlying that image, which moves towards, A, not questioning your own tradition by looking at some other tradition. So that's the perennialist view, for one thing, seems quite liberal. Oh, all religions are reaching towards the same goal, which is, to my mind, simply propaganda and overrides differences. A friend of mine many, many decades ago said, how can two traditions, one of which is monistic and one of which is dualistic, be the same? (laughs) If you have a fundamental difference that is so basic, how can they be ultimately the same? And how can they be moving toward the same goal? So there are a lot of problems about perennialism, which is often taken as simply true. And like I say, it's a very nice way of avoiding conflict. And it seems nice and liberal in that sense. Mm-hmm. We'll be accepting of your tradition because it's just different. Uh, it's a different path. And we understand that. And that's okay. But there is also a distinct elitism involved in that view, which is that we know that they're all the same. We have a view that allows us to see that there's one mountain. And a different dimension of that same elitism emerges in one of the rationales for how to teach religious studies. And I first came across this with a colleague at a school Uh, where I was teaching before I started working at the Institute of British Studies. But I since came to learn that it was um, Houston Smith's metaphor, which is that teaching religion ought to be like teaching music appreciation, that it's training people to be, to appreciate good music is the analogy for teaching people to appreciate, oh, good religion. So what that does then is promote the view that anybody who disagrees with you who says, no, really, really, my religion is different 
is narrow, bigoted, reactionary, conservative, and so on and so forth. It casts them in a very negative view. So the idea that one can be trained to appreciate religion means, in the case of people like Houston Smith, is learning the perennialist interpretation of different religions as the truth about those religions. Traditionalism adds to that a number of um, aspects that draw on Romanticism, including nostalgia for an idealized past, appeals to authority, particularly initiatory authority, a kind of heroic individualism that I am on a quest, so that romantic hero model gets integrated into it, and epistemology and a theory of mind that take experience as unquestionably true, a kind of fundamentalism around religious experience, and then an aestheticization. The religion is fundamentally an aesthetic experience of some kind. These are characteristics that traditionalism adds on to perennialism, along with its anti-modernist kind of uh, nostalgia for an idealized past. In brief, it's like traditionalism is perennialism plus a notion of secret initiation to really oversimplify this whole complex uh, topic, because they do tend to value initiation into particular kinds of orders. And that's where a lot of the contemporary, not just contemporary, a lot of where traditionalism comes from is out of um, contact with Sufi teachings. And the idea of being initiated is a key to that. So I think that it, it's a set of ideas that have filtered into both academic religious studies and popular religious culture and have become very influential as a consequence, including in the formation of representations of Buddhism that accord with those, uh, those ideals and themes. To bridge this to the next question, you just mentioned secret initiation. And I wanted to talk to you briefly about ritual, because I know that you have a great appreciation for it. And we already spoke about it briefly before. What would you say might be the difference between secret initiation and ritual? Okay, so secret initiations or initiations into secrets is a particular kind of ritual and carries with it the, at least in the West, a lot of notions of status. Mm -hmm. And in some cases, surrogate status. This is only a partially informed opinion on my part. But certainly there is a tradition that has treated secret societies as surrogate satisfaction. So you may be a plumber and serve a very useful function in society, but not have high status. But you can also be simultaneously, secretly, a 33rd degree mason. So that's one of the theories about why secret societies are effective, is that they provide that kind of surrogate status. But ritual is just a, a much broader category, and for the most part, I prefer to avoid, I try to avoid reifying ritual as a category, uh, as a distinct, clear category, and instead take the strategy that um, Catherine Bell worked with, which was to talk about ritualizing uh -huh. as an activity that has a multifaceted scale, uh, rather than something is or is not a ritual. Rather, it has some of the characteristics of ritual it's high on and other characteristics it's not. And those change over time. 
So something that might be, as we were talking about previously, might be instrumental in one case, develop over time into a purely pro forma and therefore ritualized form. Okay, so when I went through the training to become a Shingon priest, I went through a series of initiatory rituals. What I brought to that was what one of my teachers explained to me about the meaning of the term master's degree. Uh-huh which was that one had accomplished a certain degree of mastery of a subject matter such that one could now engage in working on that subject matter independently. Uh-huh. Uh, that one had undergone a certain amount of uh, training. And that's that kind of attitude is what I understood was going on with the initiations that I was receiving. And it was kind of like, okay, so I'm willing to make certain commitments. Yes, so, so I get this kind of initiation. I'm willing to... Um, I've completed a certain amount of training. I know how to do these rituals. Okay, so now I'm getting, it's not so much initiation as kind of certification Mm -hmm. in the same way that in a graduation ritual, one receives certification of having accomplished a certain amount of training to a satisfactory level. One of the things that is very, very pervasive in modern Western Buddhism, Buddhism as it's found in contemporary popular American religious culture, is a kind of opposition between ritual and meditation. Uh But that opposition is based on the mind-body dualism. And what it does is it locates um, meditation in the mental side, which for cultural reasons is valid or is valued, and locates ritual in the physical side, the embodied side, which for those same cultural reasons is negatively valued, and then also treats ritual as, well, mindless or thoughtless in character, merely rote action. And again, if you kind of step back from that dichotomy, one can see that the same activity could be looked at either from the mental side or from the physical side and called either meditation or ritual. Mm -hmm. It's now something of a truism to say, well, if you look at Zen Zen meditation, if you look at it from the outside, it's highly, highly ritualized. So why is it called meditation and not ritual? Why isn't it called Zen ritual? And things that are called Zen rituals are not the meditation practice. It's other stuff that goes on in the temples that is referred to as Zen ritual. So there's this valorization, positive valuing of meditation and the mental in opposition to the negative valorization of the physical um, and the ritualized. And I think that that just really does tend to distort, uh, distort such a value judgment. It's just the rhetoric that people engage in. And the way that it is frustrating or just the way that it does distort is when they begin to project those things onto other people. Uh When, say, a temple in the Buddhist churches of America, somebody goes to, and again, this is something that I've heard, and they say, well, how are they Buddhists? They don't meditate there. So it's not just the equation of meditation with Buddhism, but it's the kind of projection of the values onto um, a tradition that is that is different and is oftentimes misunderstood because it's different. Yeah, and I think there's a link back there as well to the uh, the topic we were discussing before about transcendence and ideology, which is uh, maybe I'm stretching this slightly, but I, I have the impression that part of this uh, over focus on meditation is is that it's 
It's private, it's individual, and it's something that allows you to transcend, you know, bodily and material concerns. Part of the critique by, you know, Ron Purser is, I think, wrapped up in that, right? In the idea that, you know, meditation is used to just manage the neoliberal condition. But I think more broadly, there there is an element to it. And here I might just be speaking psychobabble, <laughs> who knows? But I do get the impression that there's often a bit of escapism from the, the messy physicalness of, of the ritual. I mean, ritual, on the one hand, as you were saying before, it doesn't always seem to serve any concrete practical aim. Although I think with a bit of imagination, it soon becomes clear that you know, ritual could actually perform immense practical aims. But those are considered secondary, you know, unifying a community, providing a space for people to come together, etc., etc. That the, the social outcomes could be incredibly practical, although not necessarily spoken of in those terms. Yeah, I think I'm. I tend to be quite suspicious, really, of any idea of this sort of mind-body split that you were describing before. But it does seem wrapped up with these far deeper issues that we've been talking about throughout the conversation today. I think essentially, at the end of the day, the issue is always one of ignorance. It's it's the fact that practitioners don't realize how deep this stuff goes. And, and part of the expectation that meditation is Buddhism in, in many people's imagination is just part of that sort of ongoing ignorance. Richard, I've taken up quite a bit of your time and um, I'm going to have to skip a few questions. I'd kind of like to ask you about Robert Wright's book <laughs> because many people are just quite happy to let it fly because it promotes Buddhism and I think they kind of feed into that sort of trickle-down benefit, you know. Well, Robert's written a, a book about Buddhism. Well, it will probably bring attention and benefit to us too. I don't know. I'm not so convinced. I I kind of had the feeling, I haven't read the book, so I've seen ex excerpts, I've, uh, I've heard interviews with him. I just, you know, with a title like Why Buddhism is True, I think he's sort of inviting a bit of critique, really. My initial response would be something perhaps resonant with your, uh, your Cohen from before, or so what? I think for me it would be, well, which Buddhism are you talking about, and whose Buddhism, and what do you mean by true? I mean, there are so many problems in that title, which you're no doubt aware of, but would you like to offer a bit of critique up of uh, Wright's work? Yeah, quite briefly, it's tautological. Do you want to explain what that is for people who are not familiar with the term? Sure. The full title ought to be, how do you reinterpret Buddhism so as to accord with evolutionary psychology, which you accept is true? Okay. And, and you know, he's actually pretty blatant about it. He explains that he thinks evolutionary biology is true, or evolutionary psychology, mm -hmm. excuse me, is true. I, I'm a little confused because I listened to his course that he gave online and then also read some of the books. So some of this overlaps, but I don't think that he explains quite in as much detail in the book as he did in the course that somewhere as a teenager, he lost faith. Hmm. And as far as I can tell, that loss of faith was motivated by an understanding of evolution, you know, of Darwinian evolution, which came to displace it. In a sense, he's been looking for that degree of certainty that he had previously, found it in a commitment to evolutionary psychology. I don't know if he likes Buddhism or if it's just a handy topic to talk about. He certainly seems to have gone to retreats and participated quite actively and um, seriously in several retreats, seems to find some value in it and wants to figure out how to explain Buddhism in a way that accords with what he thinks he already believes is true. Mm. 
And that's what I mean about how do you reinterpret Buddhism as evolutionary psychology. And if you accept that evolutionary psychology is true, then Buddhism is true. Of course, the whole question of what does it mean to say that something like Buddhism is true is so fundamental that it just seems bizarre that somebody would think that they could make that claim. Not everything is true or false is what it comes down to. And anyway, it's just, like I say, it's a, it's a tautology. He, he reinterprets Buddhism in a particular fashion, and that fashion is what he says is true about Buddhism. And very conveniently ignores all the stuff like ritual and beliefs and deities and cosmologies that don't fit and so on and so forth, which he's quite content to dispense with as not fitting into that modernized, essentialized interpretation of Buddhism that is Buddhist modernism. It's really curious that I think he's got as much mileage out of it as he has, and unfortunate because it does seem to have gotten a lot of public attention and it reinforces all of those preconceptions about Buddhist modernism being what actually Buddhism is. Mm-hmm. And so now suddenly he's an authority. Yeah, which is a funny one. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's possibly the uh, the most negative outcome of it all. That, as you rightly indicated, he's, he's just another proponent of Buddhist modernism. Being painted in that light means he's he's plugging more of the same old stuff, really, and perpetuating the same myths. So Richard... Is there anything else you'd like to, to say that you haven't had the opportunity to say? Is there something that's nibbling at you that just needs to come out before we finish up? Right. I wanted to go back to, um, you had talked about consumption earlier. Okay. And how this this is a dynamic in American and, and from what I understand, European culture as well, based on economic models of consumerism. Mm-hmm. From a, a different dimension of this is that that 19th century heritage of mental science of it's a part of the history of Buddhism that I think is way understudied. Shannon Hickey's forthcoming book is probably the best thing on the topic. But looking at things like mental science and mental curing, even the notion of mental health, that Buddhist meditation has been fit into this notion that there is a a technology that one can apply to oneself to make oneself better. And that's a strong part of the whole self-help culture, where so much of Buddhism in the West resides, and has very, very strong roots. So there's, it's not simply a matter of consumption, which is certainly important in terms of how Buddhism is packaged and presented and conveyed, but it also works by appealing to this background beliefs about mental self-help and the use of a um, of a kind of technology of the mind to improve oneself. Old images of self-hypnosis that you're going to uh, change how you are through affirmations and so on. All of this is part of the same broad cultural phenomenon that is oftentimes ignored by the historiography of Buddhism in the West. And I think that only, um, like with Hickey's forthcoming work, just beginning to be paid attention to um, as kind of the magical, esoteric dimensions of uh, Western society and how that played into the adaptation of Buddhism uh, as we find it today. Hmm. Yeah, that's really interesting. I think you're right. It's an underexplored topic. In fact, I mean, it comes across as an immediate an oxymoron to put the whole self-help project, you know, alongside Buddhism. But uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So that, that's going to be interesting. So this, is that book coming out this year? Do you know, happen to know the uh, title? 
not without looking it up, but I know it's from um, Oxford University Press. It's a, a revision of Hickey's um, dissertation. And she's should be available this year, as far as I know. Okay. Well, maybe she'd be a good guest to have on then to uh, to talk with about that topic. I think so. Thank you for coming on. Appreciate you giving up your time. Thank you for talking about these these many interesting topics today, many of which I think our listeners will be uh, pleased to listen in on. And I think listeners should definitely, if they haven't just yet, go and read some of the work at your blog, in particular that piece on perennialism and traditionalism. 